Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Andrew Schreier with another episode of Talking Addiction in Recovery, and today's episode is going to be a Q&A, and this was derived from the work I do at New Life Resources, where we were asked to do an addiction sort of training in the community, and it was hosted by Cornerstone Church. And what we did was a few colleagues and I put together a kind of half-day little presentations on like Addiction 101. And during my portion, I covered a lot of what's going on with addiction today, what are some of the trends that we're seeing. I talked about like really what is addiction, and I also went into seeing addiction differently in ways that over the years I have come to understand it and share that with clients, patients, family members, the community. When I'm speaking to people, it's about how I see it a little differently that helps me understand it more, which is what I believe is the key thing to really working with addiction and and many other things as well. Another one of my colleagues presented on family member aspects and what it means with boundaries and self-care, which is such an important, crucial part It's one of the reasons why in my book, Addiction Recovery, I have a whole section devoted to family members because of how important that is. And then at the end of the seminar, we had a QA and a in which audience members could write questions. And in a panel format, we sat and answered them. And there were a lot of good questions to kind of shock me to the point of, wanting to really dive into them and get into them but we didn't have a lot of time we wanted to respect people's time so what i decided to do was to take those questions and read them again and answer them in other ways or just adding some things uh there were questions i didn't even answer to get my sort of two cents on it so this is how this q a is going to go so if you were there Uh, in the audience listening to it and one of your questions wasn't answered fully or you wanted to get a little bit more in depth this is the chance to kind of hear it now there was also plenty of people uh, who've asked was it recorded and unfortunately it was not but this is kind of a way to to hear a little bit about more what was talked about and discussed and for anyone else it's just good to hear some of the questions that audience members had in regards to the topic of addiction so Let's get started here. The first question was, is addiction a disease? And addiction has been, still is, talked about back and forth, back and forth on, you know, is it a disease model? Is it a learned behavior? All these sorts of things. And over the years, you know, I get into more of a, it's a combination of everything. You know, is it genetics? Is, uh, you know choices come into play and all that yes all of it has a part in it but when i get into it on the whole disease model i I look at it in a very simple way that helps me understand it and i talk about how we have organs in our body that play a crucial role in, in how we function and i give the example of like the heart the lungs and the brain and i ask the audience what is something that a person can choose to ingest that might have an impact on how these organs function and so when we look at the heart you know i've got a picture of a heart with like junk food all in it fast food and all that kind of stuff when i have a picture of the lungs the lung is actually smoking a cigarette and then with a picture of the brain 
I show a bunch of drugs that are being used and to the brain. So the question is, what might happen to the organs if the person continues to use these substances over and over again? So what could happen to the organ's ability to function if substance use, and I'm not just talking about drugs, but even food or other things too, has that impact? And one of the things that we look at is the organ's ability to function is compromised. So when someone has been smoking for so long, and they have lung disease, basically the lung doesn't function the same way as it did before. It's compromised. Its ability to function in a normal, healthy way doesn't work. When someone has heart disease, we look at that the same way, is that the heart does not work in a similar manner as if it were healthy. You know, the absence of heart disease. So then the same thing with brain disease. So when the brain has been used, um, when a substance has been added to a brain and the chemicals and everything that goes on, its ability to function is not the same. So we all call that lung, heart, and brain diseases. And we see this with other diseases, but we struggle to see this with addiction to alcohol and drugs. And, and the question's why. And one of the reasons I believe is unlike you know, lung and heart and even things like diabetes, addiction resides in the organ in which we make choices, which is the brain. So the fact that our choices are being affected and our decision-making is being affected and other parts of our emotion and whatnot, that's harder for some people to understand as opposed to lungs. When someone's coughing up, lung, coughing up um, mucus or they're having a hard time breathing, we understand what's going on and we get it, that their lungs aren't functioning the same because it has lung disease or it's been impacted by smoking, for example. And then we look at with a brain disease that it's a little bit hard to understand that, that what we're seeing is not the brain coughing or the brain functioning differently like we would think a heart would be, but in the brain, we see that through decision-making. We see that through choices people make. We see that through how their emotions are. That's some of the ways that we see it, which we're not used to looking at it when it comes to like a health thing. It's easier to see symptoms of like a health thing when it comes to different parts of your body than it is necessarily with the brain. But there are other brain diseases out there as well in which the brain does not function, and we don't have a... a question on if that's a brain disease and we look at alzheimer's so we look at that and say someone's having a hard time thinking or remembering and we look at it and say well they have a brain disease that makes sense but we don't think of that when it comes to an addiction to to drugs or alcohol and one of the things i do as i go through these slides is i show scans of brains when it comes to alcohol when it comes to cannabis, when it comes to um, Alzheimer's, and when it comes to like what a normal brain looks like. And that's kind of like a kicker, a wow factor when I present because the images of Alzheimer's and someone who's been a chronic alcohol user or cocaine user, the brain has similar portions where it, it's affected and you can see that. And they kind of look like holes or dark areas depending on what the um, imaging is looking like but that is where you can see that the brain has been damaged 
and you could even like mix and match these and and they look very similar um certain parts of the brain and both areas like alzheimer's and drug use is affected and i know the biggest barrier to it is when it comes down to like someone didn't choose to have alzheimer's and i don't really think people choose to have an addiction either but people do choose to use alcohol and drugs Um, just like people choose to eat fast food all the time or people choose to have cigarettes and one of the things that i shared was that i don't use the disease model as an excuse or a lack of accountability one of the things that clients and patients know of me is that I still hold accountability for the need to make decisions and learn how to make better decisions if the goal is to hopefully restore and get healthy just like other diseases happen and people still have choices to make and that's where we tie into all like the the skills teaching that goes on and and counseling and therapy and treatment provides all those ways of rethinking and learning new ways of how to do things because it has become such a chronic way of doing it that going untouched or going untreated, we're just going to see that happen over and over. And the symptoms we're going to see are the things like poor judgment, impulse issues, poor decision-making, emotional distress, um, and inability to really manage that. So that's um, pretty much all to say about that at least for this portion right now uh next question is what's a good way to deal with an addict's lies and in my book i talk about how dishonesty and lying is part of the the tricks of addiction and it can turn you know an honest man into a liar i use a quote on that and the biggest thing to really realize is that when a person with an addiction is lying and depending on what's going on, but that lying continues to just be so like chronic and all that. So the first thing to realize is that they're more so lying to themselves. And part of that's being projected onto you. And that's where denial comes in and all that kind of stuff is that they don't want to face what's going on or they're trying to. Lying when the addiction's going on is basically to protect the using from to, to keep happening. And when I look at like the addiction, the addiction wants lying to happen because that will protect it because without it, the truth is scary to addiction. The truth scares addiction. Recovery, on the other hand, loves truth. Doesn't mean truth is easy, doesn't mean truth isn't hard, but it wants truth and addiction wants dishonesty. So first of all, realize that a lot of that is the person with the addiction is being dishonest with themselves And if they're lying to themselves, they're going to lie to others. And that's part of what's going on. The other thing is to really work on boundaries and to disengage. This is what we talked about. Um, My colleague did a fantastic job discussing boundaries and what to do, what not to do. And we do a lot of boundary work at New Life Resources, which I think is really important. But it's pretty much to disengage, you know, trying to change their mind or trying to get them to think differently when they're in that state of mind is very low likelihood to happen. Uh, There are times where I disengage with a client or a patient if their lying seems to be getting way out of control. And I won't try and like just confront it. You know, one of the things, one of the simple things 
that I've come to say, which tends to work, is if I got someone talking to me and they seem to be like in this denial phase, they seem to be lying about something, and it seems very clear to me because you don't just want to hop on everything to be like, you know, everything you're saying is a lie because that just makes it more confrontational. But one of the things that I come to say is, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm talking to your addiction. It sounds like the addiction is talking to me. And I would say, you know, like that devil on the shoulder, or angel on the shoulder, and the addiction's represented by the devil and the angel represents the recovery. It's like I'm hearing more of that devil addiction talking. And it it feels like I'm over here fighting on the recovery side or the sober side and we're not getting along here or we're not on the same page and why is that and that doesn't magically get them to tell the truth but i've found that as a very useful way um outside of disengaging just point that out and because that gets their mind thinking a little bit differently when i say that so next question What about tobacco addictions? I've heard it's the hardest one to quit. What about sugar and all that kind of stuff? And addiction is fascinating, especially when you've worked with it for so long. Because in my career, you know, there's a lot of things where I've heard where, so far I've heard every drug is the hardest to quit. Um, No matter what it's been, everyone's been the hardest that's what someone at some point has has told me but it's fascinating to find out how some people struggle with certain drugs or substances and others don't i'm not sure why that really is i don't have an answer to that i've got some people who've been able to quit alcohol for x number of years but struggle with cocaine i've had people give up heroin and not been able to give up alcohol. So part of my question, usually when I have someone in that situation, is I I ask, well, what was it that you were able to do to stop using this other substance? And what's, what's missing between the two? If you look at everything you've done to stop heroin use, have you done all those things to try and stop alcohol use? And you'll notice, and I'll have them even write, even uh, do like a chart on that. But addiction regardless of a substance they're all hard and i think that's the thing for the individual person i mean they wouldn't be having this addiction if it was easy to just give up so no matter what addiction i'm seeing someone for whether it's for alcohol drugs gambling pornography sex technology whatever it's for even if it's a substance that's being ingested or it's like a behavioral addiction, that is hard for them. And it's the hardest thing for them to give up and to stop. It's why they'll say, I have an addiction. It's why they're seeking help or it's why their life has gotten into so much trouble or chaos that they are seeking services. They normally don't come to treatment or go to help because they were so easily able to stop. And the one thing that I, I talked a little bit about with, you know, what about these other addictions is that everyone likes to throw, I don't want to say everyone, once again, the generalizing, but 
a lot of people like to throw around like, well, what about positive addictions? And the positive addiction wouldn't fit because a lot of the things about addiction is the consequences that happen, the impact, uh, how it's interfered with life, um, put you in hazardous situations. So like all those things, it's hard to say that those would be positive. So, and another thing is people like to use the word vices. And I think we all, everyone does have a vice. And when I look at a vice, it's more of something that is our go-to or that we tend to rely on sometimes or that we've done once in a while that we sometimes think maybe that wasn't the best way for me to cope. But that doesn't mean that it was an addiction. So if somebody got stressed out and it was a long work week and on Friday they decided to go drink and maybe they drank too much and got sick or whatnot um, and they stopped drinking, you know, for a while that might be where that person that's like their vice where at the end of the work week they do that but maybe they look at it and say you know like man i felt like crap um it probably really didn't even help me i probably shouldn't have drank as much but that's what i used but that doesn't mean it's necessarily an addiction but i do believe that a lot of things can become an addiction in the sense that addictive behaviors and substances often become such a coping mechanism in the one size fits all tool that suddenly becomes a a need or I have to have it or without it I become very much distressed. And I in a very weird way, I learned to call this finding a pacifier in the toolbox, which is the addiction becomes like the one and only tool for the person to use to have fun, socialize, escape, deal with stress, manage problems, etc., etc. I use because I'm in a bad mood. I use because I'm in a good mood. I use because it's gross outside. I use because it's nice outside. The function of the addiction starts to become habitual in which any kind of discomfort often leads to using the drug or behavior in order to survive the distress. So it's like they're one tool only in the toolbox. Nothing else seems to work anymore. They don't try anything else. And automatically that's what they go to. And surviving the distress often leads to being unable to cope with the discomfort and not having any real problem-solving ability. So now all of a sudden they can't cope with certain things like stress or boredom or doing certain things because they're teaching themselves not to cope they're teaching themselves to use this substance or this behavior that is distracting them from it and really becoming more destructive because the tool becomes more destructive. We see that where all of a sudden now it's, oh, I, I use because it helps my anxiety. Well, now when I stop using, I'm even more anxious. And boredom's a great one for that. I hear that a lot with boredom. People talk about being bored and then they use but then when they stop using their boredom is even worse than it was before and they need to use again for the boredom to go away and that just becomes such a a cyclical chronic destructive pattern where now it becomes the point of it's going to start weighing heavy with some consequences and we see that where i kind of compare this to like taking a medicine ball and you got 10 pound medicine ball and holding it starts to become really tough and it's it's that's kind of like the distress and the discomfort 
and all of a sudden you do something, just get it away. That's kind of like throwing it in the air. And that's like where the addictive behavior comes in. So you throw it in the air momentarily and it's not there anymore. But what happens when a medicine ball comes down? It's a lot heavier. And that represents the consequences that still come with it. So emotional distress occurs as a result of not having the substance or the behavior, which is what I kind of look like as this is now like the pacifier. So when that behavior is taken away, the person doesn't know what to do. They don't know how to cope. They don't know how to socialize. They don't know how to relax. So the moment that that's taken away, they become so distressed, which is why I use it as the, the pacifier. So sometimes I ask people, you know, what would happen if it wasn't around anymore? What if I snapped my fingers like Thanos and took away all the drugs in the world? What would you do then the moment you became stressed now? How would you feel comfortable socializing around others? How would you have fun? How would you deal with some pain that you might have if I took all that away? And that's a deer in the headlights response right there. There's plenty of people who look at me and they wouldn't know what to do. And I'm not necessarily going to say to them, well, yes, that's why you're an addict. I don't, I don't say that. What I go from there is there's some kind of dependency that you have developed where if you don't have this, you need it. And you can't deal without it. So I think a lot of these things can be that way whether it's tobacco or sugar or drugs or gambling um, shopping yes I have seen people for shopping addictions and other things that is where you look at if you can't do that what would happen and what does that tell you all right next question how do you respond to Christians who believe that addictions or any mental illness is a result or proof that a person's faith is not strong enough? So Dr. Green, uh, my boss, my mentor, um, one of the smartest people I know and enjoy working with a ton, really answered this question well. And I'm really not going to try and explain how he explained this part and that is a future idea of doing a an episode with him on talking about this aspect on addiction because me and him have done a lot of addiction work together uh, he teaches a master's course which he had me come guest teach at so there's a lot on this to cover but i'm not going to try and explain how he did but i'm going to say there's two stories i'm going to share about this where there's one guy I had who had a strong belief in that God was going to take away his urge to drink. And he believed that's what it was going to take for him to stop drinking. In the meantime, he just kept doing what he was doing. And he was still drinking and he was still engaging in the same things because he was waiting for God to come along and take away his craving and urge to drink alcohol. And this guy never got sober that I know of. Um, if he is today, that's that's great. Uh, not going to say anything negative about that. But 
I never saw him maintain sobriety whenever he would talk to me because he'd be honest about it. He'd tell me about his drinking. Story number two is I had a, a guy come into treatment, alcohol as well, and he also used cocaine in the past. And cocaine, he said God took away his craving or desire to use cocaine and he never used cocaine again. And he said that's what he's praying for, that God takes away the craving and urge for alcohol. But it hasn't happened yet. So similar parallels here to these stories. But the difference is the second guy didn't wait for that to happen to still work a program. He went to treatment. He participated in his treatment. He engaged. He learned about new ways to cope and deal. We also used his spiritual background and beliefs and applied it to his treatment. We looked at how can he use his faith and spirituality as coping skills. We actually created a list of Bible verses that he could use when he has urges and cravings. We talked about him going to church and getting involved in in activities there to connect with people to get that social support network that was outside of just like a recovery community we talked about engaging in activities like events and festivals or stuff like that Um, because when it comes to being social this guy's family all they did was drink so we talked about needing to do other things so the difference between the two in this was that I I see a lot of people who have the spiritual belief that, you know, God's going to take it away from them and they're hoping for that and some are praying for it. But I've seen the differences between people who are just waiting for that and other people who are working really towards that. And I'm under the impression where I just believe that God has his plans and what's going on and what's happening is part of that we don't know it if we knew it maybe it wouldn't even happen but i always ask people who have this question is where you are now what do you believe your plan needs to be or what do you believe you're supposed to do while he does his plan what's your plan (laughs) and yes you can rely on him or trust in him or some other spiritual part but it's not just he does his part and you don't do your part. Like, so what is your part in this? And I incorporate it a lot. I often, uh, refer people to the, the life recovery Bible. It takes the Bible and relates it to recovery. And I I refer that a lot to people. So I really don't think that people who lack faith or struggle with their faith, is the reason why they have an addiction. I really don't believe that. Because for one, I know a lot of people who have a lot of faith and have a lot of um, connection and commitment to it. And they still, they have an addiction too. And they struggle with it. And I've seen some people change with that. I've seen people who, when you work with people who have been incarcerated, you find either this wide range of either they have found God or they lose God. 
and it's it's pretty like that far end of the spectrum there usually isn't like a middle area there's once in a while but for the most part people say they found god or they kind of lost god but i've seen people go from they lost him or didn't believe in him to when they did start doing it and that's great to see too because they incorporate that then into their recovery and they look at i need to do this um and and there's a lot of great churches i've known who have even worked with some of uh clients and patients i've had and amazing to find out some of the people in those circles who have addiction and histories and backgrounds to where the connections are absolutely phenomenal amazing and it's one of the the greatest things to do so a lot more on that in the future more than likely because i think dr green has such an amazing uh viewpoint in response to this that um you know hopefully we can share down the road next question are the holes permanent or does the brain come back like lungs do when you stop smoking and a lot of people ask you know like how long does it take to recover um how my honest answer is it takes a lifetime to recover and that's more so of that recovery is a lifestyle and something ongoing that you have to do for the rest of your life as long as you have it which when i look at it is right now you have an addiction it's gonna be something that you have the rest of your life it doesn't mean it's always an active addiction but the addiction is still there and there's a lot of you know people throw around numbers like oh three years and my rule of thumb sometimes is like you know however long you've been indulging in it and abusing it and using it just imagine if it were you know the the same amount (laughs) if you were doing it for three or five years imagine if you were doing it for um then recovering might take three or five years that's just a an equal thing but i this is one thing that i'll tell you that stands out to me as far as like when you notice people have repaired or that they have noticed to be a little bit different when it comes to how they function when i talk about like the the brain disease and there's two things that stand out and one is like that that fog and that's earlier on in recovery that people explain that they're like in a fog and a haze their thinking is kind of um a little difficult even when they're sober and that doesn't last like a super incredible long time for some people they describe it as as taking that long but for a lot of people i know that's more like short term when they get out of that fog that's a good sign that they're kind of getting over their substances leaving the body and they're getting more into being abstinent from the substance, which is really, really important. The other thing, and this sounds weird, is I start to notice when someone is kind of healing from it is, and this is going to sound strange, but when a client or patient tells me that just the other day or recently they laugh so hard they can't remember when they laugh that hard they described to me like this belly aching of a laugh that they had and that always stands out to me because i'll ask them when's the last time you felt that way 
when's the last time you had that kind of a belly aching laugh? And I kid you not, a overwhelming majority of the time, people will tell me that it's been since before they used. They have not had a genuine laugh like that being sober in a very long time. That tells me that there was a lot going on with the substance use or the behavior and their emotional and mental makeup that they were not able to laugh like that. And now after some time sober and learning how to deal with uncomfortable things and coping skills and connecting with your emotions and doing all this and that, that now they're able to do that. I look at that as one, that's one of the the best things that I can hear from someone. To be honest, that is a great moment when someone talks to me about that. Because in me, I'm like, this person's reaching a level of recovering. And they're going through something that is amazing, that was hard work, and not to be taken for granted at all. And that's one of the things that I look at as, well, how long does it take? And I can't give an exact answer of, oh, yeah, they're, they're boom, they're healed now. They're good. So that's something to, to pay attention to. Next question. What does treatment for an addiction look like and does treatment work? Um, Two-part question. Treatment is a whole variety. So there's a lot of different settings. You know, outpatient, inpatient, residential. There's medicated-assisted treatment out there now. But overall, treatment is focused on, you know, trying to eliminate the use um, or significantly reduce it from harm. It's based on teaching coping skills, teaching about thinking, going through um, getting connected with resources, if there's physical stuff, if there's mental health issues in particular for sure. Treatment's about making connection. Treatment's about building a support network. It's about learning how to make decisions and planning as far as like relapse prevention. Treatment looks like a lot of different things and that's like a, that's like treatment treatment. Recovery on the other hand is looks like a lot of different things. You know, people find recovery in all certain ways and one of the supervisors that I work with um, Jim Harrison and I both talk about how there isn't one thing that works for everyone but there is something that works for someone and whether that be through church whether that be through spirituality and praying whether that be through support group meetings 12 step whether it be through smart recovery or some other kind of support groups whether it's through a new activity or a hobby there's a lot of different ways people get sober and engage in recovery and i wish it'd be that easy to just say do this and it's going to work for some people some things work but all i know is for all of them you have to work it it works if you work it and if you listen to previous podcast episode of mine that's exactly one of the ones that's titled because whatever you do you have to do it because it's not going to just do it for you and that kind of answers that second one and i think the to 
Answer, does treatment work? It does work. Does it work right away? No, not always. Sometimes it takes one, two, three, four, five times. All I know is that the more someone tries a treatment, the better chance they might have at healing and addressing it and maybe being able to get sober and embark on the journey in recovery because doing it on your own and it usually isn't working. Um, and the saddest part is a lot of people don't get treatment. And here's something I want to say on that before we go on to the next question. If you're someone who's in treatment, I, I want you to hear this. A lot of people with an addiction will never get treatment for it. And regardless of the reason, whether it's financial, whether it's accessibility, whether it's they don't want it, but whatever the case may be is a lot of people don't get treatment. I say this because if you're in treatment or you're receiving multiple treatments, realize that a lot of people are not getting this opportunity that you have. And when push comes to shove or when things get really tough, there's probably people who would beg and plead to get this chance, to get this chance again. And there's a lot of people who never get that. And I, I talk with that a lot with people to just realize that it's a chance that could save your life. It's a chance that it could turn things around. No one ever, when I hear people talk about addiction and I talk hear about people talk about their recovery, being in treatment isn't like the thing that's like the, yeah, that was the greatest aha moment for me where I am. That was the greatest time of my life or day of my life. It, it It's not the, the best thing it's treatment's hard it's a lot it's not easy it's not fun it's not vacation um i try and make it fun and i try and help people learn but it's not all good and glamour and a time off from everything but where i'm going with this is that treatment is going to be the potential turning point that can get you to that good moment where you do realize what's going to help you get sober and what your recovery is going to look like. Rarely does someone go from I'm addicted to I'm in recovery and I know what to do now. And treatment can become that bridge or that tunnel of opportunity to where you can get away from the addiction and the using part of it and get away from some certain situations and environments and things and get a chance to figure out what you want to do, how you want to do it, and get some help with that so you can look at a pathway for recovery because that's really hard to do when you're in the throes of addiction. So I just want to make that point clear where if you got an opportunity to be in treatment, take that chance. Take that chance to try and do something about it. It could be the greatest opportunity you have that other people unfortunately do not have. Next question. Right, this one's directed to me. AJ, <laughs> regarding your slide, misunderstandings about addiction. Addiction can be cured. Please respond upon that. And in my book, I write about the misunderstandings about addiction. I also write about the misunderstandings about recovery because I personally don't 
like the whole myth thing. Acting like something's a myth is, I don't know, it's just really weird to me. That's just a personal thing where we act like it's a, a mythical thing and it's not helping. And when I talk about it, as I say, these are a lot of misunderstandings. The more we misunderstand addiction, it's going to be harder to understand it and try and help. So I write about a lot of things that are misunderstandings about addiction and about recovery. So one of them was, I say, that, quote, addiction can be cured, quote. And what I say is that that's a big misunderstanding, that there is like this cure out there. And I warn people that... If you ever hear a commercial or read a book or something that says a cure, I that's a red flag for me. There's a book that um, I have it at my other office. I don't have it here. That is like it's like the addiction cure. And in the book, they describe having a very high success rate um, with treatment. And the crazy part is, is even if that was true. Like, if it was a cure, wouldn't it be 100%? Like, if you can cure something, wouldn't that be 100% success rate? That everyone would be cured of it? So, I don't believe there's a cure for addiction. I don't think it's out there right now. Could it be? Possibly. As a person with a chronic medical condition type 1 diabetes there is no cure right now there's a lot of stuff going on which i'm thankful for and grateful for and one day might be fortunate enough to experience that but right now there's no cure for that so i understand hoping or wishing there was a cure but until that time is pretty evident you got to look at this as, as this is an ongoing thing for the rest of your life, which is why I talk about recovery from addiction being a lifelong thing. And I know that because I just had a story a couple months ago. A patient of mine told me that his uncle was in recovery and he was 40 years sober. And after 40 years, he had a relapse, um, and started drinking again and getting heavily into his alcoholism. If he was cured, even after that 40 years, we wouldn't see that relapse. So where's the, the cure for that then? And I wish I had a cure. I, I, I said a thousand times, if I could, if I had the cure, um, I'll find something else to do. There's plenty of other things I can do, but until then, I'm going to keep doing this. So when I talk about that, it's a misunderstanding. It's that there, there is no way that this just becomes cured. And that's sad because I do hear people come in and even when I'm working with kids or I'm working with adults, I'm working with significant others and family. And, that, and I think it was good for family members to hear, to be honest, because I'll have a family member come in and be like, all right, let's, um, we're here. Let's take care of this. Let's fix this so we can move on. There is no, let's just fix this and you're good to go for the rest of your life. It's hard to hear. I know that it's desired and it would 
do a lot of good things if it was out there. I'm telling you, I don't have it. I'm telling you, I don't know who does. So that's the whole part of misunderstandings about addiction. Next question. My husband is denying his addictions. Please repeat suggestions to talk with him about. And, you know, there's only going to be so much you can do when someone's in denial about it. And this is really where, once again, boundaries is super important. Where the person, the spouse, significant other has to learn how to, what to do and what not to do. And learning how to set their own boundaries because if someone is denying it and denying it and you're trying to confront it, confront it, there's just a good chance there's going to be a lot of chaos. And it doesn't mean ignore it, like act like it's not there or not believe it or let them get away with it. I think that's a big thing that family members have to process is just because you're not confronting it and you're not... Um, convince him otherwise means that you're letting them get away with it or you're allowing them to it's a lot of ownership you're taking of a disease of an addiction that's not yours it affects you but it doesn't mean that you are that cause of it or that it's your fault that they're doing it um, there are certain steps that you should take to have boundaries and to protect yourself have self-care um but to look at it as it's your fault or that you're causing it or that you're not stopping it um, is something really important for family members to to get into and to talk about um, and get help for. And that's why I think family members need help as well. So there's no straight answer to that, but it's just to understand that there's no easy answer or way to get them to understand it. I've heard a thousand different ways of people who have tried. And there are times where it has worked. And there are times where it's it's made things a lot worse. So it's, it's hard. I, I get it. It's hard. That's where going to somebody and talking to him about it is really, really important and special. Or going to an Al-Anon meeting and connecting with people who have gone through it you know you say hey i found his bottles or i found his drugs um what do i do and there are ways to confront it and to acknowledge it and there are boundaries to set but the whole part of someone being in denial and getting them to accept that is definitely not something that's easy as a counselor there's a lot of ways that when i'm in session that i use to engage them and try and break through that denial and it's not just an easy thing to do and some people don't even get through it um i can't tell you that i've gotten through every single person who's had denial of their addiction and that's why i say it's not that easy to just think of they're denying it how do i talk to them about it so uh next question i have a nephew with an addiction, his father has continued to enable his addiction. His reasoning for doing so is because it's not my son, it's his addiction that is the problem. He refuses to recognize that the addiction is a part of his son and that and this part of him has fractured so many aspects of their lives and relationships. 
I've given up praying for this situation to improve. I've been, it's been an ongoing saga for so long and I'm not close to it on a day-to-day basis. Am I wrong to have moved on? A lot of loaded pieces in this and I'm not going to break down all of it, but one thing that stands out right away is I've given up praying for this situation and I would, I'm not going to tell a person what they can and cannot do, but Praying might be the best thing that you can keep doing. And as Dr. Green told me and explained to me is, you know, helplessness is that being knowledgeable and having information with no authority, you know, meaning you can see things and you know things and you recognize what's going on, but yet you have no power to really change anything. And that's where this person seems like they are, where they seem like they're helpless and what they're doing isn't working. And praying might be the best thing that you can do. And, you know, praying for the child, praying for the his father, and even praying for yourself. But I would just encourage that the prayer isn't to all of a sudden ask for, like, you can pray for a miracle and for things to change, but also just pray in general for that this person gets help or that they something happens where they might realize that they have a problem or that the other person realizes it. But just pray that there is some kind of impact or that something can happen that could affect them in a positive way. But part of it is, is am I wrong to have moved on? And this is a really tough question because there's a lot of times where parents ask me, significant others ask me, um, how long do I stay with them? When do I divorce them? When do I kick them out of the house? And these are gut-wrenching questions. And this can be looked as as a cop-out. Um, but I believe that I say this because it's important to realize where I stand with it is that I don't tell people, yes, kick them out. I don't say, yes, go divorce that person. Um, I do talk about safety. If someone's being unsafe, that there are things you need to do, like be ready to leave, Um, For the time being, be ready to call the police or to lock the house. Um, But I tell people that I'm not going to make a decision for you because it's not my marriage. It's not my child that I'm making this decision for. So it would be a lot of um, it'd be easy for me to say what to do without any risk to myself of saying that. And when they make that decision, there's a lot of risk involved. So I don't tell people that, yes, divorce them or, yes, kick them out. I do two things. And these are two things that are really important. The first thing I do is I prepare people by trying to help them make the best decision on the possibilities that are out there. What are the options and how do you cope and deal with it when it happens? So the example of kicking someone out of the house, I go, okay, well, when you kick someone out of the house, 
what happens when they tell you that they're going to be living in the street? How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? How do you deal with the fact that you might not know if they're safe? And this isn't to scare them into not doing it. Because it's the same thing that if they say, well, we're going to, what if, what if we just let them stay? Okay, well, what happens if you let them stay? What if they bring drugs into the house? What if they do become a safety concern? You know, how do you deal with that? What do you do? So I try to lay out all the possible likely options of what they can choose to do and to look at how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to cope with that? What are the obstacles and barriers in the way? What might happen if this happens? Do you do this? How do you respond to this? Because I, I believe in helping people trying to make informed decisions, and especially in an example like this. The other thing I talk to you about is breaking points. That everyone has breaking points. And for some people, it's earlier on. Some people, it's later on. I don't know when they are. But I talk to family members about this. I talk to significant others. And I talk to clients too that everyone has breaking points. And no matter how much you think my family won't abandon me or leave me, which is a whole wrong concept in and of itself. But there's points where people get where they can't do it anymore. And I've seen that. I've seen that said in session before. I've seen a wife turn to a husband and he had another recent relapse and he was trying to make it work better. But it was very clear that this time his wife was, she was done with it. She goes, she said, I can't trust you anymore. And I don't think I'll ever be able to trust you again. And that to me was like her breaking point. I'm going to share this story. I share this story a lot. Is I was in the group home and we had a kid that was there who was 17. And this was his last chance at treatment before his probation officer would recommend that he be sent to the adult correctional system. He's been multiple treatments in the past. None of them were successful. He was not very motivated, non-compliant, continued to use, got into trouble. And the MO of the story was that when it came down to the consequences and being in front of the judge, his parents would come and they would plead for their son that he needs help, that he doesn't need um, punishment, and to please give him another chance. So this kid comes to the group home, and I talk to him about, like, well, what's going on with your parents? Haven't heard a word from them. They've never come to visit you. Oh, they'll they'll do their normal thing when it comes down to it. And so, okay, I'm I haven't heard from them yet, so it's a little concerning. But he didn't seem phased. A couple of months go by, he's doing the same old thing. Um, not following rules, being non-compliant, still using alcohol and drugs, and no word from his parents. 
Not a word. I ask staff, hey, has his, has his parents called at all? Nope, they've never called once. Have they come to visit on the weekend during visitation? Nope. Never come over the weekend. Okay. So time goes on and his probation officer got sick and tired. I guess this is her breaking point. She files for paperwork for him to be sent to the adult correctional facility. And him being 17, this actually required a trial in front of the judge. And I'm going on, I had to testify. And on the way to court, I talked to him and I I said, hey, I'm not holding anything back. I'm not going to throw you up there to be... um, attacked i'm not gonna sacrifice you or anything i'm not gonna hang you out to drive i'm gonna be honest about what i see and what you're doing and he goes i i know i don't expect you to do anything different i go okay i said i'm gonna just tell them about your behavior your what you're using is um the stuff issues you've been having at the group home and, and not participating or following the rules i'm gonna make that known when they ask me and he had no problem with it he's that's he goes that's fine and i said and your po clearly is not going to be really on your side either for this and he goes yeah i I know she's not so you know i'm trying to get him to understand like what we're facing here and really what he's facing you know this isn't my life this is his life he goes my parents will be there and the judge will ask them if they have anything they want to say and they'll do their usual thing and I'll get another chance at treatment. And I go, <laughs> I go, did you talk to them? Nope, I haven't talked to them. It's like, all right. So we get to court. And sure enough, his parents walk in and they sit in the back of the court. And the PO testifies. I'm called up to testify. And the kid talked a little bit. And the attorney talked. And sure enough, we're at the end and the judge goes, I, I see his parents are in the room. Is there anything they would like to say? And I, I remember this so clearly that it is burned in my memory. I remember where I was sitting and I looked at my client and he had this smile on his face like, here we go. This is it. And for a moment, I believed him because what he was telling me was actually playing out. So he had this look on his face. We we saw each other. We both looked at his parents. Sure enough, his parents get up. And without a word, they walk out of the courtroom. And I remember seeing those court room doors close and looking back at my client and seeing nothing but shock and utter disbelief of what just happened like the the life was sucked out of him and a couple minutes later the judge um ordered him to go to the adult correctional system. And I share that story a lot because 
that family for the longest time continued over and over to help out, to bail him out, to advocate for him. And he thought that there was never going to be a day where they weren't going to do that, that they were going to come to the rescue. They were going to save him. And when I was there, I saw that breaking point where they got up and walked out of the courtroom. And shortly afterwards, their son went to the adult correctional system. So for the individual with the addiction, I'm saying this because family members have breaking points. And the question here was, am I wrong to move on? I don't have any fault or blame or judgment towards his parents. I don't really have any hatred or displeasure for this client either. Um, I understand that they reached a breaking point and they couldn't take any more. And that's not an easy point to get to. But as the active addiction goes on and the behaviors that are associated with it and the impact that it has not only on the individual but the family, that just adds more and more of that pressure to the point where people will break. And that does not surprise me. So recognize that, yes, your family members or significant others can reach their own breaking points where it's very hard to fix that. But also as a family member, realize that you need to be aware of that too, that you have breaking points And that's why it's so important to practice boundaries and self-care and to make sure you're doing what you need to do so that you don't end up in that breaking point where things can get really damaged, um, which can be harder to repair. So the answer is no. It's not wrong to move on. um, But moving on is hard. And moving on normally comes with a price. And it it comes with a lot of discomfort and it doesn't feel good. But there are times where I know that a family member needs to move on or they, they need to separate themselves because if they don't, they could become dragged down as well. And addiction is damaging one person's life enough and the worst thing that it can do then outside of that is to drag someone else down to that extent too. So that's one of the the toughest stories to talk about, but um, it's probably one of the most important ones that I can share when it comes to family members and, and whatnot. Last question. Can you share a story of someone's success in breaking a, heroin addiction and highlight what they did right or differently than people who turn back to heroin's abuse and man I wish I this question was so great um, I was filled with joy when someone asked it because there's a lot of great stories of people in recovery there's there's a great amount of people who do get better who get sober who move on who live 
fantastic lives who still work a program or who are still working a way of their recovery and they don't get talked about enough they don't um when we do family day programs when i was in uh, residential treatment we would often invite um graduates from the program and people with some sobriety time to come in and tell their stories and my former boss um would talk to me about this and i thought this probably one of the smartest things she's ever told me her name's connie shrank that we were having a store we were having a, a former this is actually two great stories right here and into one and it ties into this so we had a um a client who she invited to come speak and i moved on from the place that i was working and she invited me to come back to speak as well and i did not see this guy for a while it's been been a while but when she talked to me about this, this was the smartest thing. One of the smartest things she's ever said was everyone has that addiction story where everyone can talk about like when they started using and how it got bad and what they were doing and what they were trying to do and what was going on. Like those stories are not that different and unique. They all fit a similar type of, I mean, everyone's own story is unique. Don't get me wrong. But those are all ones that every audience member gets that. So they they understand that and they get that. That this is, um, here's my story and how I started using and where it took me and how bad things got. All the people who are there sitting in treatment have that story too. What everyone doesn't have, which is what this client had, which other people were working towards was he had his recovery story. He had the story of how I got sober and what I'm doing to stay sober and what my sober life is like. That was a story that not everyone in the audience had. That's what made it different. And I always ask people too, um, you know, what's what's going to be different this time? Like, and the the real question is, what are you going to do differently? Like, there's got to be some difference, or else we just keep repeating the same old thing, which is Einstein's definition of insanity, expecting different results. But here's the other great part of that story: this very same client is someone that I was my client when I was working with him. And in my book, after every chapter, I provide a letter that I've written for a client when they graduate. And these were graduation letters because it was the last chance I could say something to them. And it wasn't a, hey, this is over. Um, Congratulations, you did it. This was more of a, this could be the last thing I say to someone and what do I want to say to them based on them? And it was, I really miss actually writing those. Um, I should keep trying to do those more often, but so I wrote this letter, these letters and put them in the book. And she told me that he was going to be there 
and I got a book for him and I signed it. And after he spoke, I gave it to him. And one of the things in that book was the letter I wrote to him when he graduated from the program. And this was well over, I think, a year or I think almost close to two years since he graduated from the program. And I got to hand him the book that I wrote, the letter that I gave him, and presented to him. And that's amazing. Probably one of the greatest moments to realize that yes people are successful people stay sober i i hear from people now i got man another one that just comes to mind holy cow um this is when i was at new life so i saw a guy at residential and um he completed it and he wanted to keep seeing me. So then he went over to uh, New Life to see me and he got in trouble. He actually got back sent to jail. I think he may have gone to prison. I think it was, it was jail or prison. I can't think of which one it was. But two years later, I get a random email saying, hey, remember when I said I wanted to move out here? I'm out here and I'm sober. I wanted you to know that. Just giving you a check-in. I don't know. I probably could have been having the worst, one of the worst days ever. And those short few words were incredible. And those are stories that don't get shared quite enough of people being successful and people making it work because they work it and I think it's important to share these stories I think it's important to let people know we've tried and find ways the time I've been in treatment programs we always try to find ways of people who have been successful and who are doing it to connect with other people and to share their stories. And I, I, that is an important thing. This question makes me want to do more of that, but I do want people to know that people can recover and it's a lot of hard work. It's one of the most amazing things to see in the profession. And when you see how people are, after they've, when you've seen them in their worst of their worst, when I see a guy who was, um, strung out high, um, using a gram a day to now where I see him two years sober, or when I've got a female who is drinking all the time and is now sober for years, I see change and I don't question it. I see what a lot of people probably hope to believe. And I don't doubt it because you can you can see those things and they're the, the most amazing things to ever witness. So 
I want to make it a goal to share more of those good stories and success stories and things that I've known people have done and where they've gone and, and the amazing things they've done with their life. And they've done it all with the addiction that's a part of their life and the recovery they're now in. So that's, that's a really great question. I'm glad someone did it. Um, I wish I could have answered some of those stories when we did the Q and a, cause I know that was one that I didn't get a chance to, but yes, always there's a belief that treatment is possible. And so is recovery. Um, I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't believe that deep down. So those are all the questions. Like I said, fantastic ones. I really enjoyed them. I'm going to look and start doing some other frequent question and answer sessions. So look forward to that. Talk to you next time.